Today, as many of the times, many of the days we've gathered to talk about Acts, we begin in the second chapter of the book of Acts. But first, have you felt, as I have, uh, that one of the greatest downsides to the problems of 2020 has been the, the intense divisions? A year ago, <laughs> we had plenty to disagree about, didn't we? I mean, but this year has added, has added to that list. We disagree about responses to the virus. We disagree about responses to the government directives about the virus. We disagree about masks and about distancing. Ugh. And then, too, we, we disagree about racial issues that came forth back in the spring. Is there systemic racism? And if so, what do we do about it? And then we got hot and heavy into the campaigns. That Trump fellow is a divisive character, we were told. Some adored him and some hated him with the white-hot hatred of a thousand sons. And sadly, these were not issues about which Christians all took the same particular side. There, there, there were never a 50-50 divide, I'm sure, but there were sizable minorities of saints who hold different perspectives on these things. Ugh. We didn't need all of that. No, no. We already had millennial views to argue about and predestination and spiritual gifts and women's roles in the church. All of that we had to fight over for a long time. Oh, yeah, and, and one of our all-time favorites as Christians, water baptism. The Water That Divides is the title of a book on this subject. So in the spirit of 2020, let's wrap up our pre-Christmas study on themes from Acts by looking at another divisive issue with gratitude that when we see the Lord, this is good, when we see the Lord, all of our concerns will melt away and there will only be sweet throne room fellowship and praise. Doesn't that sound good? All right, Acts 2. We've often referred to Peter's sermon. It's groundbreaking. It introduces a number of critical themes from the book of Acts, baptism included. You'll remember, as the story goes, that a large crowd had, had gathered on the day of Pentecost. They heard Peter's message about Jesus, who had recently been crucified, and now, said Peter, this Jesus is risen from the dead. He's gone to heaven and was crowned by God as Messiah and Lord. And when folks asked, they interrupted his sermon, which is okay to do, in certain contexts, if you interrupt with the right question and motivation, they interrupted his sermon and asked him what they are to do in response to these truths that he was preaching. And Peter said this in verse 38, repent, and each of you, let's all read it together out loud. Okay, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this concept of baptism would not have been entirely new to the people in Jerusalem on that day or to the apostles. The Old Testament appointed certain baptismal rituals to follow in the worship of God. John the Baptist had been there not too many years before, preaching, bab preaching and baptizing there in, in the desert near Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, had told the apostles that their mission of making disciples, including the responsibility to baptize those disciples. So we see this running throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2 says 3,000 people were baptized on that very day. Think about that. In Acts 8, when the gospel broke through among the Samaritans, we, we read this. When they believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were being baptized. I could give you more verses, but I don't think you need more verses. Everyone can see that the apostles urged water baptism for everyone who came to faith by hearing the gospel. So far, so good. 
and all, or close to it, are agreed. But where there is division is over the place of baptism in the gospel message. Some denominations have made Acts 2.38 that we read together a moment ago, they've made that sort of their central text, their theme verse. And so they insist that baptism by water is as critical for conversion as is repentance and belief in the Savior. Now, that's not our understanding at all. Peter in Acts 2 indicates that a saving response to his message included both repentance and baptism by water. Elsewhere in Acts, a saving response involves faith and faith alone. At other times, it's repentance, repentance alone. In most cases in Acts, there is no mention of baptism as a prerequisite for receiving the salvation that they were proclaiming. Repentance, that's mentioned routinely. In Acts 16, you know the story, the jailer comes down and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is consistent with what we read in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, where over and over again, Jesus says, he who believes has eternal life. Over and over, we read that with no mention of water baptism. Clearly in Acts, saving grace is visited upon individuals prior to their baptism in water. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching at the house of Cornelius. A group of Gentiles hear the gospel message, respond with faith, and then we read this in Acts 10, 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? Well, you got that? They had not been baptized in water, but they had received the Holy Spirit after believing the preaching. The baptism which followed clearly did not save them. Instead, it sealed and signified and celebrated the faith that they had already exhibited that joined them to Christ. Now, baptism, listen, it's important to be sure. It is not optional for us as Jesus' people, but it is not presented in Acts or in the rest of the New Testament as a prerequisite to have your sins forgiven, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to become part of the family of God. Another relevant story is in the 8th chapter of Acts where the Samaritans received the gospel and many there were baptized on that occasion. One of those baptized was a fellow named Simon. Yes, Simon, like Simon Peter, but a different Simon. He was called Simon Magus or Simon the Great. Apparently, he was sort of a, sort of a magician. He did tricks and gained a reputation. He was baptized in, in verse 13 of Acts 8, but then when he saw the miracles that were occurring at the hands of the apostles, he approached the apostles and offered them money if they could teach him their secrets for these incredible tricks they were doing. And, and wow, Peter was not pleased when Simon made that offer. Here's what he said, in fact, verse 20. Peter said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could acquire the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart be forgiving you. And so he says to Simon, you need to repent. You need to ask for pardon. He says, your heart is not right, which doesn't sound much to me like a freshly born again believer, but Simon was, had been, baptized. You see, baptism does not bring salvation to pass. It is possible to be saved and not yet be 
baptized. It's also possible to be baptized and be lost. It is in a different class entirely from repentance and faith, which are essential inward graces wrought in the heart by the Spirit of God. So then we see that baptism does not cause, it doesn't even contribute to our salvation. From here, let's move on through the book of Acts, and we're going to ponder the why, the when, the how, the who of baptism, okay? We start with the why. We baptize because our Lord said to, but what does it mean? What is the significance of water baptism? Well, it's at least three things. First, it is a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3 refers to the Spirit when it says that He was poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and that pouring out of the Holy Spirit results in our souls being cleansed. Baptism at its most basic is a ritual that celebrates cleansing. And how are our souls cleansed? Not by something a preacher does. Remember years ago, in like 1983, a man came into our little church in Melbourne, Florida, and he passed out tracts to our group of women that were having a Bible study on a Tuesday morning, and, the, and they gave me, one of them gave me the tracts he passed out, and it said, there's three things you must do to be saved, and one was believe in Jesus, the other, or it said, no, it said, your part, God's part, the preacher's part. <laughs> That's what it was. Your part, God's part, the preacher's part. And the preacher's part was to baptize you in water. Uh, they presented that as an essential element of salvation. No, no. There's nothing that the preacher does that saves you. What God does saves you. The major difference among Christ followers when it comes to baptism, it's not between the Baptist and the Presbyterians. That's not where the major controversy or difference is found. Our differences between the Baptists and the Presbyterians, and both of those groups are represented here in big numbers, the major difference between us, uh, the major difference, I should say, but, uh, our differences are, are fairly small. The major differences in, among Christians are between those who see baptism by water as changing spiritual reality and those of us who see it as representing or celebrating spiritual reality. The suggestion that a water ritual performed by human hands actually changes spiritual reality is contrary to the simplicity, the God-centeredness of the gospel. So baptism is not the saving work of God, but it symbolizes that saving work of God. The pouring out of water preaches a sermon about cleansing grace and every man's need of that grace from Jesus. Just as the Lord's Supper visibly displays before us the work of Jesus in redemption, so baptism visibly displays before us the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Its function then is that of a sign, and signs are about something else to which they point, about which they speak. Listen, a few years ago we got a new church sign. It's been a while now, but though one, two, about five years ago, I guess, we got that new sign out there, and it's nice, and we want, people to, uh, we want people to pay attention to our sign, but not so that they get to know about our sign. The sign is to point them to our church. That's what signs do, and in the case of baptism, the sign points to the Holy Spirit as the agent of our cleansing and renewal. Secondly now, baptism by water is an initiation into the covenant community. Just as when one becomes a member of a club or a fraternity, one must undergo, in many cases, an initiating ceremony, so it is when one becomes a member of the church of Jesus. That initiation ceremony is baptism. It awaits you upon entrance into the household of faith. And this is one of the reasons we baptize little children even before they can come to a place of professing faith. They are not to be regarded by us as outsiders by virtue of their relationship 
to a believing parent, they are treated as part of the family of faith. In the Old Testament Israel, the children are counted as part of the covenant community and thus given the sign of that covenant community. More on this in a minute. Thirdly, baptism by water is an indication of one's faith in and commitment to the one in whose name you or your children are being baptized. Let me say that again. Baptism by water is an indication of your faith in and commitment to the one in whose name you or your children are being baptized. I referenced that when I baptized Joel, that he's identifying with this Jesus. We see in Acts that the baptisms are in the name of Jesus. That's what we find in Acts 2.38, Acts 8.16, Acts 10.48. If you look at that last one, there, Acts 10.48, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What's the point of the name? Baptism, again, in someone's name means you're identifying with that person. You are taking his name on yourself and thus pledging yourself to him as your master. When someone is baptized in the name of Jesus, it means that person is committing himself or herself to follow Christ as king. Now, now some want to make an issue on how Matthew's gospel, you know, ends with that call, the Great Commission, that call to be baptized or to baptize disciples in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in Acts, the baptisms are consistently referred to as being in the name of Jesus. This does not strike me as a notable concern. Jesus can stand for the entire Trinity. And of course, if you baptize in the name of the Trinity, you are baptizing in the name of Jesus too. The historic baptismal formula involves an identification with the Trinitarian God, even while it represents our union with Christ as Savior. So baptism serves us well as a symbol of the work of the Spirit, as the initiation right into the covenant community and as an indication of your faith and commitment to the one in whose name you are baptized. Okay. This is that time in the sermon where you get to take off your mask and smile at the pastor. You have three seconds to do that. Go ahead. Thank you. Now put it back on. We're going to look briefly now at the when, who, and how, the when of baptism, as one would suggest, as Acts would suggest, is right away. On the day of Pentecost, the day, 3,000 people. 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized. In Acts 8, when the eunuch headed to Ethiopia, he trusted in Christ. And when was he baptized? Well, at the very next uh, rest area they, they came to. They stopped and took care of the baptism thing. Water baptism, although not salvific, is presented in Scripture as the first step in Christian discipleship. It's not to be delayed. Now, the book of Acts records for us the first generation of those becoming Christians. So those who came to faith would not certainly have been baptized earlier in their life, not as babies, not as young adults. So, like so many nowadays, a lot of times today people come to faith in Christ. They've been baptized once, twice, three times in some cases. Nowadays, folks coming to faith often are baptized before they actually embrace Jesus. Many churches will rebaptize at that point. Our polity is not to do that. But for any who come to repentance as adults and have not been baptized, this is not something to delay. Step up. Identify with Jesus. His primary means of doing that is water baptism. Next, consider the how. 
how baptism is to be administered. And here we get into the grand debate on sprinkling versus pour, sprinkling or pouring versus immersion. The fundamental question is this. In water baptism, is it proper that the element, which is water, be applied to the person, or do we apply the person to the water? You follow that? Is the water applied to the person, or is the person applied to the water? That's the great question over which the Christian community has been divided for many hundreds of years. Our denomination recognizes the validity of either type of baptism. It's essentially a cleansing ritual. You do showers, you do baths, they both work for us. The Westminster Confession of Faith says dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. We believe that it's best to apply the water to the individual rather than the other way around. Several reasons exist for this, but one reason is that sprinkling was the apparent method of biblical baptisms. Here we can look at circumstantial evidence in favor of sprinkling in the book of Acts. But first, we need to look at the Old Testament, which, of course, is not silent on this matter. The Old Testament provides the foundation on which the New Testament is built. The Old Testament people of God were commanded to and did practice ritual cleansings, both of objects and of people. Hebrews 9 sums up for us the Old Testament practice. Here the author is comparing the benefits of the Old Covenant with the benefits of the New, and he says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, and here he refers to how they would sprinkle this animal blood on an unclean person for cleansing. Verse 19, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, they took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. What did he do? How did Moses ceremonially sanctify the people? He sprinkled the water and the blood. There is mention there of a hyssop branch. The hyssop was a plant, the soft branches of which were sponge, had a sponge-like quality. When dipped in the water, it would soak up the water so that when you wave it or shake the water, uh, shake the branch, water would sprinkle forth out of the hyssop branch onto the person or persons or objects being set aside for God's purpose. The Jews would use the hyssop branch for their baptisms, their ritual cleansings. If you look at Ezekiel 36, here we read a prophecy that finds its fulfillment in the return of the Jews from Babylon and also in the new covenant. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will, I'll what? I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Here God promises the coming of the Spirit who will cleanse within. And how does God describe this cleansing? I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is how the Jews thought of the work of God. Furthermore, in the instructions of the Old Testament regarding the ordination of their priest when they were set aside for the priesthood, here's what we read in Numbers 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. What's it say? Sprinkle purifying water on them. These are the ideas that would go through the heads of Jewish believers as they thought about water baptism. They pictured a hyssop branch, and they pictured sprinkling. So now we come to Acts 2. Acts 2.41 indicates that on that day 3,000 were baptized. Were they immersed, or were they sprinkled? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. 
But to insist that they had to have been immersed leaves one with some difficulties. There were no rivers in or near Jerusalem in which to baptize. Furthermore, with the opposition of the Jews being so great, it's doubtful they would have been able or allowed to secure any, any other place without great resistance. Furthermore, you have the problem of time. The baptizing may have started, I don't know, as early as, as, early as 10 in the morning, maybe, uh, with 12 apostles baptizing throughout the day, if you allowed seven hours before it was dark, and if they managed to pull off an immersion baptism about every two minutes without a break, you would still fall way short of 3,000. Follow the science. <laughs> Do the math on that. Uh, that is supposing that they found a place large enough for all 12 of the apostles to be baptizing, immersing people at a time, and supposing that the water was at hand and all things in readiness, which presumably they weren't. If immersion were the method, it would have been extremely difficult to pull this off, but if it were by sprinkling with hyssop, a couple of hours would have sufficed. The circumstantial evidence of Acts 2 favors a baptism by sprinkling or pouring. Now, Acts 8, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch again, important notes about this case. Verse 26 of Acts 8 says that this occurred on a desert road, and you all know what makes for a desert, right? It is a lack of H2O. Uh, second note, Philip discovered the eunuch reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, chapter 8, verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Leave that up for a second there, Jeff. I, I've heard some folks use this as a proof of immersion because it says, look, I, I'm told the eunuch went down into the water, so it must have been by immersion, but look at it again. The eunuch didn't go into the, the water by himself, did he? If going into the water or coming up out of the water suggests or proves immersion, apparently Philip was immersed as well as the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, the text does not give away the mode of baptism. All we can look at is the circumstantial evidence, and here again we see little to commend immersion as the baptism method. First of all, it's highly improbable that on a desert road in that region they would find a body of water deep enough to immerse a full-grown man. More than likely what they found was a shallow pond. Secondly, if we examine the passage, we will learn that the eunuch heard of Christ and no doubt his, his need for baptism from reading and learning about a portion of the Old Testament scriptures, namely the latter portions of the prophecy of Isaiah. Right when Philip arrived, this is, this is really cool, cool providence, <laughs> right when Philip arrived, in fact, he was reading Isaiah 53, which is about the suffering servant. Is there anything in that passage that suggests the subject of baptism? Well, in fact, there is. Remember now that at the time there were no chapter divisions as we have in our day. And just eight verses before the one that was quoted in Acts 8, the eunuch would have read this from what we see as Acts or Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Two verses later. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. He had just read that. No text could have been more applicable to somebody about to be baptized, a Gentile believer at that point. It is from this text that he would learn his need for baptism, and it is this text that would have suggested 
the most. So again, the circumstantial evidence favors sprinkling, not immersion. Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer story, again, the conversion of this jailer took place in the middle of the night, you'll recall. Verse 25 tells us that it was about midnight when an earthquake hit, shook the jailer up, freed all the prisoners, and as the story goes, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all in the house, and he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Now what mode was used here? What is suggested by this account? Again, if it were immersion, you would have a number of difficulties. Virtually no buildings in those days had a pool adequate to immerse, and certainly a jail probably wouldn't. This would mean that the jailer and his wife and his kids and Paul, who was a prisoner, would have left the jail unguarded, gone out in the middle of the night to a local river and been immersed, returning to their home dripping wet in time to have a lovely breakfast. Does that sound likely? Again, I ask... Which method is supported by the circumstantial evidence of the baptism account? And the answer is, is obvious. Now, none of these accounts sees fit to explicitly tell us how it was done, which is rather annoying and would prevent a lot of difficult conversations over the last 2,000 years. But you look at this and you ask the questions, if you grew up Baptist like me, where's immersion? The answer is, immersion is in all those Sunday school quarterlies that I read as a kid that depicted John the Baptist pulling Jesus up from under the water or other people being baptized by immersion. But when we examine the evidence, we find not one clear case of immersion baptism in all of the New Testament. Instead, we find evidence to the contrary. We conclude then with a quickie consideration of who gets baptized according to Acts. In Acts 16, we find the story of the start of the church in Philippi, that Philippian jailer thing again, and the jailer goes to Paul and Silas, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word to him, to all who in his house, and they took them all that night. Immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. So again, who was baptized? The jailer who believed in Jesus, and all in his household... Do we know who was in his household? Again, it would have been nice to tell us and spare us the debate, <laughs> but he doesn't. Uh, let's look at an earlier episode in the same chapter where Paul preaches to a group of women by a river, a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And then in verse 15, Lydia believes, but who was baptized? Verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized. Does it say whether or not Lydia had any four-year-olds in her household, two-year-olds in her household, 11-year-olds in her household? It doesn't say. It doesn't really seem to matter. The point is that the entire family came under the covenant sign because the family had, in this case, a woman believed. There's one other reference in New Testament to household baptisms, 1 Corinthians 1.16. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. And here again, you see the family perspective coming through. Jews saw through a family lens more than an individual lens so that we have three entire households being baptized in the New Testament without any particular suggestion as to who exactly made up the members of that household. What clues I have, and they're just clues as to the apostolic practice, leads me toward not away from the position that we call covenant baptism. If you go on our website under membership resources, you can read and hear an entire sermon on this particular sub point. We here at North Park Church, we live happily with our differences on this issue. We have elders, 
who are not entirely in sync with our position as a denomination or as a church on these matters. We understand that sincere brothers and sisters who love the word every bit as much as I love the word disagree with us on certain issues here. But I hope you who differ can see why it is that we have concluded what we have from a study of Scripture and especially from the book of Acts. I fear this may come off this message this morning as dry and academic, but the subject of water baptism should never be dry. Uh, whether we think of it as the giving over of a child to God or the representation of spiritual cleansing by the Spirit, it is a precious thing. And we are pleased that today we got to celebrate the baptism of Joel Morley. That, by the way, was a providential coincidence. I had this message planned, and they picked this day to be with us to have him baptized. So let us thank God for the grace which baptism celebrates. What is more marvelous than being cleansed of a deadly disease? We're celebrating the deliverance from a deadly disease of many in our congregation, some of whom are, are here right now. But some diseases are clearly more deadly What's more marvelous than one cleansed miraculously from that? What cause there is to celebrate? What, what can compare to the celebration? Luke 15, of course, gives us those great stories about there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. It's our cleansing from the pollution of sin by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that baptism symbolizes and celebrates. I had quite a day about 10 days ago. I lost my iPhone. And you know how terrible that is, right? When you lose your iPhone, you just feel this emptiness inside. <laughs> and, it, you know, you, you, it, I, hadn't lo I hadn't left the house. And uh, it was just such a mystery. You know, it turns out I had gone to Beth's car to turn off the a dome light that was left on in her car. I, I was there for like 30 seconds, and I guess while I was there, the phone slipped out from my pocket, slid under the seat of her car, and uh, eventually, through the graciousness of God, I found it. I was, I, I thought we should do something. Should we, well, you can't baptize an iPhone, but uh, some ceremony to celebrate the finding of that which was lost is worthwhile. But what? greater reason do we have to celebrate and rejoice than when someone comes and professes faith in Jesus Christ and is set apart to be his servant forever. So, final application. You may want to come for baptism yourself. Take young Joel's example today to follow. Praise God. What, what an encouragement that, that is. Some of you may have recently accepted Christ, and, and maybe you've never been baptized by water. Now's a great time to initiate that process. See me about it. It's, not, it's necessary. It is necessary, not for salvation, but for obedience. So I invite you to be in touch about this soon, and, and let's pray. Let's pray that 2021, we would see a number of folks baptized in Jesus' name and for his glory because they have experienced his marvelous salvation. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the book of Acts and the incredible expansion of your kingdom 
that it depicts for us. Thank you, Lord, for the preaching of the apostles, the calling of individuals to repentance and faith, the work of your Holy Spirit to fall upon dead sinners, bring them life, to fall upon <coughs> dirty sinners and bring them cleansing and purification in Jesus' name. We thank you that that good work is continuing so many years later. And we pray that you would do that work among us, among our family members, our neighbors and friends. God, make 2021 a year in which we see a number of people taking this step towards Jesus in repentance and faith and even through committing themselves to you before us as Joel did today. Lord, move in each heart. And Father, we pray that you give us gladness, not so much in the ceremony, but in what it represents, the washing away of sin, the pouring out of your spirit in which we trust. Amen.